Kent Garrett. Welcome to another edition of The Last Negroes at Harvard. There were 18 of us in the Harvard class of 1963. We were born in the 1940s and are now pushing 80. In 1959, we entered Harvard as Negroes, but graduated as Blacks and African Americans. I'm joined by Jerry Secundi, John Woodford, and Fred Easter. I'm also joined by Peter DeLosovo, Alden Briscoe, Nick Bancroft, Hamp Howell, Bill Collins, and Marcy Benstein. Our guest is photographer and journalist Chester Higgins. He was a staff photographer with the New York Times for more than four decades, and his work has notably featured the life and culture of people of African descent. His photographs have over the years appeared in magazines including Look, Life, Time, Newsweek, Fortune, Ebony, Essence, and Black Enterprise. Higgins has a new collection of photos in his book titled Sacred Nile, the story of our collective spiritual imagination and practice. He celebrates the agency of people of African descent and their influence on the foundation of Western religion. So, I'm uh, usually in New Hampshire, but today I, I went over to Michigan, stopped in Niagara Falls and watched that majestic sight for a while. And then I came over to Michigan, so I'm not too far from John Woodford. And, and, uh, and then on another note of geography, as a young guy, I, uh, I traveled, hitchhiked and traveled most of the length of the Nile River. Ah. Uh, basically from Juba, or near Juba in South Sudan to Cairo. It took me several weeks. And I traveled by steamboat and by donkey and by little dows, little sailboats that went up and down. So I'm I'm uh, I'm new to Mr. Higgins' work, but I'm I'm uh, so I'm looking very much to getting the book as well. Okay, good. I have a question for you. Yeah. Hey, Peter, the, in Juba, does the soot is that in the middle of the soot or is that below or above the soot? No, that's below the soot. Okay. And I'm telling you, traveling through the great soot on a steamboat was really, really an amazing experience. Of course, I hitchhiked all through Africa for a couple of years. And you, you talk about getting people onto a different time zone. I mean, uh, one time in Nyasaland, which is now Malawi, I came across a flooded river and we had to wait for the ferry boat to take the trucks across. Well, the wait ended up to be three and a half days, you know? So, so Americans should just have that experience. That, that happened to me very young in life, and I, I've been quite a patient person ever since then. Juba, the Juba at that point was this little tiny town. Now it's a big city, big, uh, yeah. big part of uh, Sudan. But then it was a little, little tiny town. And you know, I had my la longest wait on the road in Juba. I waited two weeks on the side of the road in Juba to get a lift. And I got the I got the first the first vehicle that came by gave me a lift. Wow. <laughs> Freddie. Hi there. Uh, I'm Fred Easter. I am calling in from Prior Lake, Minnesota. 
uh, a southwestern, maybe third ring suburb. Jerry. Well, good morning, all. Um, Jerry Secundi, Pasadena, California, home of the Rose Parade and the Rose Bowl, and that's coming up fairly soon. So that's our claim to fame out here anyway. Uh, I, after law school, I spent two years in Cusco, Peru uh, as a Peace Corps volunteer um, up at 12,000 feet. You need good lungs at that point in time. Then joined the Department of Justice as an environmental lawyer and an oil company's environmental lawyer and the state water board as an environmental lawyer, the Audubon Society as an environmental lawyer. Uh, and I'm still an environmental lawyer. So. <laughs> <laughs> good, that's good. <laughs> Nick. <laughs> um. Nick Bancroft outside of Boston. I was a classmate of these guys, most of them. And uh, <clears throat> it's interesting to hear uh, your description of going uh, uh, down the Nile. Uh, right after I graduated from college, I uh, got together with another guy and we had two choices. Either we were going to go up the Nile to South Africa, <clears throat> uh, but reading about Juba and swamps and uh, <clears throat> mosquito-borne diseases like sleeping sickness that uh, dissuaded us from that. And we took the other route, which went due east from uh, <clears throat> London, ultimately to Kathmandu. <clears throat> and so that was a different kind of a, a trip. John. Oh, hi. Yeah, John Woodford here in um, Ann Arbor, Michigan. Peter, what city are you in? Rochester, Rochester. Oh, Rochester, Michigan. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I'm here. Uh, I worked at the University of Michigan for a lot of years, putting out a an alumni publication. But before that, uh, I was at um, New York Times, Muhammad Speaks, Ebony Jet, New Haven Register, Chicago Sun Times. So I've always had a lot of ink on me. Let's say. <laughs> Bill. Yeah, Bill Collins, I'm in Aiken, South Carolina. Now, I didn't go up and down the Nile, but I did cross oceans. <laughs> of, after college, I was in the Navy for a while, and I went to work for Westinghouse and then came down here to Aiken, South Carolina about 30 years ago to work at the Savannah River site to help with nuclear waste cleanup. And I'm now retired from doing all that. Alden. Uh, I'm Alden Briscoe. I'm in uh, San, just south of San Francisco in California, although I grew up on the East Coast. Um, and uh, I uh, have the distinction of being in a classmate with most of these folks here. Marcy. Um, I'm in New York City. Um, and I was riveted by the stories this morning about the Malcolm X case because I was in the Audubon ballroom two weeks before he was murdered. And um, equally important, I was uh, inspired by the story of documentary evidence being used by good people many decades after the fact to get at historical truth. Hamp. Uh, I'm in Nashville, Tennessee, formerly from New York and Boston, uh, and uh, six months in Brazil and Puerto Rico. Uh, I was impressed with myself because I hitchhiked around Europe my uh, the summer of my junior year for three months, but uh, I'm a lot less impressed after hearing about your adventures in uh, uh, Africa, Peter, and, and some of, uh, of, the, of the others of you. Now, what year did you hitchhike in Europe? Uh, uh, 62. 
Oh, so that was before Andy Tobias did his Europe on $5 a day book? You know what? I don't know, but I went over there with uh, $600 in traveler's checks and I came back with uh, uh, two, $250 in traveler's checks. <laughs> and, and, and then they got robbed out of my bureau at Harvard. Oh my God. <laughs> okay, guys and ladies. <laughs> um, I'm a photographer and my uh, eighth book of photography is a uh, all color <clears throat> book, which is a departure from my black and white. And it's all on the Blue Nile River. And more specifically, it's on the communities, ancient communities along the Blue Nile River, who, who were the first to believe in a monistic, monastic God. Uh, the ancient Egyptians who believed in nature, uh, the, uh, and then how that religion bifurcated and, uh, and became Abrahamic faith and how that changed beliefs. And were you, so I'm looking in this book, uh, first of all, uh, the Egyptian, what the Egyptians left behind that spoke to their belief system. I'm also, I discovered in Ethiopia that there is another movement uh, of people who believe in nature. Um, the one that's still living uh, is called Waka by the Oromo people. And we know that uh, from the Bible, uh, that Sheba, her ancestors believe in na nature, and we have only the remains of obelisks in the royal city, ancient royal city of Aksum, uh, where we have these designs that are uh, that look like the rising sun over the uh, uh, highlands. So this all started for me in '73 when I went to Egypt with. Uh, uh, a, a friend or a colleague of Malcolm X, his name was Peter Bailey. Peter Bailey was, this, was a, an editor of, of, a, of a new newspaper that Malcolm was spinning off. And, but when I met him, he was an editor of Ebony Magazine. And he saw the work that I was trying to do and he had this uh, opportunity to go to Egypt. And he says, uh, there was a couple of trips to Egypt and East Africa. And he said, hey, you should come along. You may find this interesting. Well, <clears throat> I didn't know what to expect, uh, but uh, when I got there uh, and I uh, walked out of the 20th floor balcony to look down, to look at the noisy street of Cairo, my eyes got hung up on the horizon, uh, five miles away, these huge man-made mountains, the pyramids. And I realized, wow, you know, this is totally new because we come from a culture here where our architecture is, is straight up and down, not slanted. Um, and then I went to see the temples in Luxor and what I was really moved about, well, one, by the monumentalness of it and, and in awe of it. But what I was also moved by was the fact that these people had a very African look to them. And it's a look that, but I had, but I was also, uh, astounded because I never heard of them in this context. And it made me think of, reflect on how I have heard of Egypt and our, our information about Egypt comes from uh, what I call a, a historical censorship uh, of the book of Exodus. And we, we were taught that the Egyptians were bad people, they oppress you and, and, and you sort of come away with this thinking that whether well, it was a short term of Egyptian civilization. It must not have been more than 50, 100 years. So then that started me to, it made me aware that there were a lot of gaps in my knowledge about what I was looking at. And that then started me on a whole journey of uh, primary research, 
uh, first reading everything that I could about Egypt uh, and that uh, popular stuff that was written. And I then realized uh, very quickly how to dismiss um, the people who were uh, essentially the new wave, new wave people who saw Egypt as, you know, yes, I was an Egyptian princess long ago in my or former life, to trying to find out uh, very serious uh, documents that were written by uh, Egyptologists and also having to filter through those things, uh, those, because people are, we all are product of our society. And in, even in the early Egyptologists, uh, the first ones were essentially biblical archaeologists, uh, Egyptologists, who had their own particular slant to protect. And then the Egyptologists, who were uh, uh, out of the uh, English uh, schools, had their own um, uh, reputations to protect. So it was, it was like um, weeding through a lot of stuff over decades, and at the same time, joining Egyptian uh, Egyptological societies and going back and forth and keeping up uh, with, a, uh, and I guess investing uh, over time in a lot of rare bookstores, uh, 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 rare book dealers, to try to come to an understanding. At the same time, 73 was a very pivotal year, it turns out, because in June of that year, uh, I went to Ethiopia. And I was very moved and taken by the culture there and how this religious practice people were doing that I had no idea of. It was an Orthodox religion. Uh, you know, coming from the South, we have uh, Southern Baptists. We have one or two hour service at the most. Uh, but here you had people who would go on for hours and hours and hours. And I was, and, and was, and the vestments and, and the trappings were just uh, very uh, compelling. And so I wanted to learn more about that. Um, so, and, and then in the process, I, I uh, had, I developed a friendship with an Egyptologist who was a very popular guy uh, about uh, mummies. You call him Dr. Mummy, Dr. Bob Breyer. And there came an opportunity to go and work with him for three years, uh, a month at a, six weeks at a time with a BBC film crew doing films for the Discovery Channel. Because in the years of knowing him, he reached out to me after I published my book called uh, Feeling the Spirit, which looked at the African diaspora on the continent of Africa and, and the, then across the Atlantic. Because since 71, my first trip to Africa, I always go back uh, every year. Uh, frankly, I find it cheaper than therapy. And I will go um, <clears throat> in the summers of 72, 73, 74, I lived in the 72, 73, I lived in Ghana, hitchhiking around Ghana from village to village, making pictures in 74 uh, in Senegal, uh, where my move was a lot more restrained because of the language, but I, so I had to make my great relationships with friends in Dakar and Goree. So um, this particular interest that I've had on um, Africa has been, has taken many directions. In fact, uh, the experience of living on the continent led me to finish a book that took 25 years to do on the African diaspora called uh, Feeling the Spirit. And this back and forth over 20 some odd trips to Egypt and also to Ethiopia led me to be able to finish this, what turns out the total time, 50 year project on Sacred Nile. So I became a photographer in Alabama because I wanted to see, uh, I wanted to see my great aunts and uncles who only had uh, on their wall a farmer's almanac and a picture of Jesus Christ. 
I wanted them to see a picture themselves, to validate themselves on their own wall. And when I discovered photography, that's what I thought about doing. A year or so later, I, and that, uh, that love for my relatives and for my people got hitched up to a political agenda with the civil rights movement. Uh, I learned a couple of things at Tuskegee is that um, when we went to a protest, uh, that good old boy, uh, uh, George Wallace, uh, the next day, the pictures in the paper will show us not as, uh, as a concerned citizens uh, uh, that are petitioning the government, but rather the pictures showed us as uh, hooligans and potential uh, rapists and, and arsonists, um, none of what we were about. But it taught me something. It taught me that a photograph never lies about the photographer. Whatever the attitude and opinion of the person who's making the picture, they will always implant that in their imagery. And then I realized that, okay, uh, I have a choice. I can go and complain and hold posters and talk to the, to the Montgomery advertisers and say, you're very racist. Or I can go and try to make the pictures that they can't see. But in making those pictures they can't see, I wasn't really good enough to make compelling images that would could, could stand the, the, that could be influential on the national stage. So then I went to New York looking for a teacher and it was fortuitous that I met this man named Arthur Rothstein, who was head of photography at Look Magazine and who I've later found out after a summer of a mentorship with him that during the days of the depression, he himself had visited Tuskegee and made pictures of students there as a part of the Farm Services Administration photographs, FSA photographs. You may have heard of people like Dorothea Lang, uh, but he was he was the first photographer hired, and he essentially taught me visual linguistics, because I walked into his office and he said, "What do you want to do?" I said, "Well, you know, I want to change the image of, of the uh, visual image of my people because when I analyze imagery of my people, the things three things that are always missing, and those are the issues of decency, dignity, and virtuous character." And he says, well, that's a pretty tall order. I said, that may be, but that's the only one I have. Can you teach me? So that's how that started out. So eight books later, I've always been interested in identity, uh, historical identity, um, genetic identity about myself. And I realized that in, if we, if African people to look for the, um, the uh, scholarly works or any works of, of uh, white scholars in America, we were going to come up short. <clears throat> and the only way to solve that problem is to do the primary research myself. And I was really, in, um, felt I had the skill to do that because at Tuskegee, one of my courses were um, uh, sociology and I had the great pleasure of being able to work on a Dr. Edgar Epps, who was head of the Behavioral Science Research Institute that and those couple of years gave me uh, the skill that I could also add to my photography to, to deepen the sense of inquiry. So I had now then the skills of inquiry then the skills of visual linguistics, and it was time to get about trying to uh, influence America. So I started uh, after college working for Look Magazine, but Look uh, folded uh, not soon after. And in 75, um, I started working for the New York Times, which gave me that national platform that I've been looking for and uh, where I thought that I could be the most useful and, and have the most good effect on not only people in my community, but but the white uh, community at large. So this book, Looking uh, Sacred Now, <clears throat> which has only been out 
since September 1st. And we, uh, and this book is a product of, uh, it's being self-published. And it's being self-published um, for a lot of reasons. <clears throat> Mainly after three years and three different agents and 40 rejections, uh, the, um, I had a choice that the quarter of a million dollars I've spent over uh, 50 years of going back and forth to Africa working on this would just uh, mean nothing or unless I could uh, operationalize it. So I learned self, I learned how to publish. And this is, I'm very proud of this book. Uh, this book, we published 2,500 copies in the first printing and we held our, uh, we bit our, our fingernails because we didn't know if we we're gonna be stuck with these books in, the, in a warehouse costing us money to storage. Well, for some reason, uh, since October 1st to now, uh, November 18th, we have 300 books left. So we don't have enough for a Christmas holiday. We've reordered another 5,000, but uh, coming from China, they won't be in a warehouse until February, which is great for Black History Month. But it's been, uh, it's been, um, it's warmed our heart to see uh, how receptive the work has become. Uh, people, uh, the visuals, uh, I think of what people like that attract them. There's a great text in this book as well. But in all my books, uh, people uh, always come and tell me years later, four or five years later, oh, I just got a chance, got around to reading the book. It's quite interesting. But I understand that, you know, it's a, it's a, it, it's, it's a visual world and the visuals should be able to speak for themselves. Um, but this, is, <clears throat> this book is 232 pages. Um, the editor and I, and uh, we had a great team uh, with writers, uh, writers and proofreaders and Egyptologists, uh, hieroglyph experts, and uh, great designer, great um, Photoshop uh, expert to work with me. And uh, so we're very, I'm very proud of what it, what it is. For those of you who have not seen it, this is what it looks like. <clears throat> mm. It's a made on the horizontal as opposed to the vertical and it's all color and- Let me inform you, Chester, that uh, when I ordered mine on Amazon, there were four left. <laughs> yeah, it's, 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 yeah, and you know, I've learned something about Amazon too, because uh -huh. people were able to pre-order the book, mm -hmm. but I, I, have, uh, I have my own distributor and people can also order from. So if you go to sacrednow.com, you're going to my distributor. Oh, I didn't know. Uh, if you go to Amazon, you go to their distributor, which they get uh, their books from me or sometimes from another distributor called Ingram, which is where all the bookstores get their books from. What we would have what would have been helpful to us in terms of deciding how to do how many to print, if Amazon would at least share with us the number of pre-orders they had, which they refused to do. Oh. Hmm. oh so know. we keep we keep sending them 80 books. We have sent them 80 books a week since the first week but they won't tell us that they have 300 pre-orders, 500 pre-orders, 2,000 pre-orders. So as opposed to if you go to sacrednow.com, we can judge that and we can, we can then make decisions based upon that. Mm. So <clears throat> Amazon is a, this is how they hold on to their information to the detriment of small, smaller businesses. But you know, yeah, that means we just have to work harder promoting sacrednow.com. Uh, and that's what all of my promotional efforts have been about, except as uh, you may have received the today's um, uh, 
Wall Street Journal reviewed it, man, yesterday. I, I just emailed it to everybody. It's a PDF. Um, in I, it is a, um, I updated it. I put the sacrednow.com uh, uh, URL on it. It did not run in, in, in Wall Street Journal, which means that normally people will say, yes, there's a book, go to Amazon. And that's, so Amazon has four books. That means that my, my warehouse has to resupply them and but we're not going to make it to we're not going to make it to Thanksgiving. Well, mm. Jester, why was there so much rejection <clears throat> in the beginning of what, what was the nature of that? Well, I think I know I can't answer that question. I can't get into other people's heads, but I, I, I don't know. I think that fundamentally the, the business of the book, the book business believes that one uh, in order to get their investment back is cheaper or more reliable to do that with a book that does not have art or photographs. I see, right, right. Those books are cheaper to do. Photography immediately drives up the cost of producing the book and drives up a cost of, and which we've tried to keep down to $40, but we're having to raise it to 50 because shipping have doubled. So they feel that inherently you're dealing with a product that has some resistance. And they don't, and they fear, like I, we feared, that uh, that resistance could mean that you wind up with a lot of books that you don't sell. Mm -hmm. That's not to mention the editorial part. I think editorially, <clears throat> it, it was so it's almost alien to them what we're talking about. And that no, and there, um, see, when you go to a, to a publisher, if an editor likes it, they have to run it across other editors. But fundamentally, who makes the decision is the sales team. Because then they have to go to the sales team and says, can you sell this? And a lot of the sales team probably has, they have a lot of people, a lot of options. Can we sell this? Can we sell that? And you may get, you, you may get lost in the cracks on that one. Right. Could you say something more about Bearden? Romy, yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the painter, the collages. Yeah. yeah. Well, I went to, I was, um, <clears throat> I did a book in 74. My second book was called Drums of Life. It was on Black men. Celebrating Black men in my life and, and, and the phases of life that, that we go through as humans. And I saw, I was, I don't know if it's a studio museum, but somewhere I saw a work of Romy Bearden. And I was really struck by it because it was, a, I struck by the power of his art because Romy really fractionalizes time in his, in his collages, but he was dealing with African themes. And I, who had been traveling to Africa in 71, I found that very unusual because, first of all, most Black Americans do not embrace their African heritage. And there are a lot of reasons for that. But here was an artist who was doing it in a very powerful way. So I said, I got to go meet this guy and make a picture of him for my book. And that's what I did. I made contact. He lived in a loft down on uh, uh, Canal Street uh, near Sixth Avenue. And so I went and I talked to him and I... Um, I made my picture and I said, well, can I come back and show you my other works, get your criticism? He's a painter, not a photographer. He said, sure. And what I learned from Bearden when he looked at my work, he said two things. He says, well, I see you can make, you can do finger exercises, but can you make a symphony? I said, well, thank you very much. You know, <laughs> I thought this was going to be easy. You know, <laughs> I felt like he'd hit me in the head with a two by four. You know, so so then <laughs> then looks at it again. He said, well, you know what you what he said. He, he says, you know what you need to learn is lighting. And I said, well, what do you mean? He says the place not 
he's in the placement of light. So he then entered, he went up to his, his library on his tall ladder. He pulled down these books of Caravaggio and Dutch, Dutch painters and Rembrandt. And he starts showing me how painters use light. He says, you know, we have painters, we have the ability to put light wherever we want it. Well, you have to find the light and make the light work for you. So that was a very important lesson because it came at the same time or maybe the same year that I had a meeting with uh, John Sikowski at the Museum of Modern Art who collected, who, who selected five of my images. And then he said, you know, <clears throat> what I, what's missing in your pictures are light. I said, well, what do you mean? I, mean, I gotta have light to make a picture. He said, no, what's missing is time of day. <clears throat> I don't see the time of day in your pictures. I said, well, how do you mean? He said, well, long shadows, short shadows, shadows falling. I don't see you telling me what time of day it is. Mm -hmm. So it happens that he and Romy both came into my life at the same time talking about the personality of light. It's not that they weren't talking about light. I didn't know light, but they were talking about the personality of light and how light defines time. So that was a very, so it was a very, and I would go to Romy's house. Romy would do these uh, after <clears throat> he realized I was serious. He would give uh, artists Saturday morning uh, appointments. He would hold court on Saturday mornings after his wife, Nanette, left to deal with her dance group. And you would have an hour, it's like going to the therapist. You have an hour to come and talk, show your work, talk about what you're talking, and then go because somebody else is coming. So, we would go to his house and he didn't have a buzzer to let you in. He was like on the fifth floor, but you can ring up and the door was locked and he had to open the window, check you, look, make sure it's you. And he would drop the keys to you down on, on the pavement, <laughs> on the sidewalk. You take the key, <laughs> open the door, lock it, go up to five stories and then you know, and, and have, your, have your session with Romy. And uh, did, I guess Romy and I were friends like this and for at least 10 years. Wow. Uh, but I, I learned an awful lot from him. He was the only mentor that I had who was not a photographer. But uh, he dealt with space. He dealt with two-dimensional space. Uh, but his, and he was, it, was, it was always a learning experience with him. Can, can I continue a little bit on technique? Uh, with two observations. The first observation, in reading Gordon Parks's biography, which I read, I don't know, 30 years ago, but I was struck by the fact that one of the things that he did was to walk around with a camera without any film in it and just take a bunch of pictures with, yes. without, without film. And this is yeah, back yeah, yeah. in the old days. I mean, some of us are old enough to know what film is. You may not know that. But, uh, but, well, uh, so that's one thing. And Talk about that a little bit. It's, it's called exercise in the eye. The eye is a muscle. It's like if you go to gym to work out a muscle, the eye is a muscle too. I taught visual thought for two years at NYU. And the first week with my students, I, I told them I didn't want them using a camera. I, mm -hmm. I was, I don't know if you remember what uh, color slides look like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. I, will buy, I will buy slides with nothing in them. Because you know, you have photographers, we have to get the piece of paper, cut this, cut the negative, and salter it in, uh, heat it in. So I would take those things with no nothing in them. And I said, okay, I want you to spend a week looking at the city, not through a camera, but through this, this slide holder. Hmm. Very simple. You take it out, you have a telephoto lens. 
You bring it in, you have a wide angle lens. The thing I want you to do is find images, find pictures, but without the camera, without the pressure of uh, whatever. Just work your eye. And that's what Gordon was talking about. Working the eye, finding the image and forcing the eye to find the image, even when you don't have, and, and, and when you don't have film, you, you are caught between, you know, is this a joke or is this real? And you got to make it real. So that's a, that's a very good experiment. Gordon was also a mentor, very, very incredible influence. Great guy. Hmm. Well, and, and the other piece is uh, going from film to digital. Talk about, about that well, process before, for you. Before I, before I talk about that, I have to say something to you that my first mentor taught me. <clears throat> In the early days of photography, since there were no schools, we had only photography magazines. And I had a basic camera with my normal, they always came with a normal 50 millimeter lens. And in photography magazines, they would show you, oh, you can make this picture if you had this lens at this f-stop and at this shutter speed. So we were, that's how photographers get caught up in craft. Because you say, oh, wow, let me do that. I can do this. What if I get, get that opportunity? What if I do this? So I saved up my money. I was very proud of myself. And I, I was going to go buy a long lens. <clears throat> and I went by my mentor's house, P.H. Polk, and I said, oh, Mr. Pope, um, you know, I got this money in my pocket. It's burning, burning a hole in my pocket that I'm going to go and I'm going to buy this lens. And he says to me, an older guy, he said, well, stop right there. I said, oh, what do you mean? <laughs> I thought you'd be happy. He would be proud of me. No, he said, stop right there. He says, I said, why? He said, there's no lens and no camera that can make a picture. Hmm. Only your eye can make a picture. You control the camera, not the other way around. You are the one who decides where the image is, where the picture to go search. So keep working with what you've got until you've outgrown that. You're not there yet. Now, Cornell Coppa, who you may have heard of, started International Center of Photography, who was another mentor, did an experiment at Life Magazine. He took the very expensive cameras he could find, Hasselblad's, Nikons, and he gave them to just people who were not photographers. And he took the very cheapest pinhole cameras he could find and he gave them to professional photographers. And he told them to go out for a day and make pictures and come back. Who do you think made the best pictures? <laughs> yeah. And, and so what about the digital uh, film? Do you end up taking more well, first of all, I have to say this. I do not take pictures. I make pictures. Okay, right. Secondly, uh, the digital thing, when it came in, in the beginning, the quality was not as good. And I was the last person at the time to switch from digital to, I mean, from film to digital mm -hmm. because the files got bigger. They got more reliable. But digital by, is, is it, you know, it's almost for, I get the biggest, you know, I'm getting a new full frame digital camera to take with me to Egypt in, next month. Uh, in January. Digitals are fine, but they have, I don't know if anybody has known the difference between ectochrome and kodachrome color. Yes. Okay. No, no. what is it? Well, first of, first of course, ectochrome is more bluish and it's, um, it's um, you sort of get this, um, this spray of color that sort of hits you, but it's kind of a, uh, 
it's not deep. Yeah. Kodachrome is very deep color. Yeah. Um, so my point is the, di the uh, digital sensors are flat by nature, by design, which is not a problem if you understand light. If you don't understand light, you don't know what you're missing. So it's not an issue. But for someone like me and professional photographers who, who are light is very important to us. I tell people light is my mistress. Where light is very important to us, we have to find, we use light to create depth of field. We use light to bring, to give you a doorway into the picture. We use light to accentuate. We use light to hide. So if you understand light, then you then it's not a problem. This because you have to you shoot to to uh, to uh, minimize the flatness and to accentuate a uh, a perception of death. Um. So you know that's that's my point. But otherwise, I mean, I don't. I even shoot with uh, uh with with my iPhone, my iPhone Max, and I've gotten good pictures. I have some in my book. But it's because I know light. Do you have a uh, favorite format in terms of uh, your cameras? Two and a quarter, 35 millimeter iPhones? Do you use them all? Do you have a favorite? It's not the equipment. No, I understand it's not the equipment, but do you have a favorite even within the equipment? No, the favorite is me. <laughs> <laughs> They to take take the the metaphor of light and to get back to the spiritual side of things. Could you say a little more about uh, you know we're we're not familiar with Orthodox that kind of Orthodox Christianity in Ethiopia, and when we get little glimpses of it, it's really fascinating, and particularly their their really their architecture of their temples, and so on and and. Uh, did your and so could you tell us something about that uh, branch of Christianity and its history and uh, how you, how you under how, how did photography help you understand it? Well, first I realized that I found out that it's Eastern Church tradition that yeah. the Roman Catholic Church is Western Church and the Ethiopians are Eastern and this all goes back to Constantinople and there's um um but for Religion, I try to photograph religion, uh, but you know, religion is a very uh, personal um, experience and people don't want to be upset. They don't want you to mess up their, their, what their, their connection that they're trying to make with the creator. So one has to be very, uh, it's a very dicey game. Here's, here's a, can anybody see this, this rock church of Ethiopia? Yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's in Oxum. I've been there. Yeah, yeah. No, no in Lalabella. Lalabella, right. That's yeah. Lalabella is their holy city. Right. Uh, right in right. the 13th century, there was a king named Lalabella who, who uh, decided that enough Ethiopian migrants who tried to make it to Jerusalem every year had been killed by the Muslims from Egypt and Sudan, who were forcing them to convert or die. So he uh, had these structures made out of the mountain, the Lasta mountain range. They, to build his own new Jerusalem, so that the people could make this as their as their uh, as their pilgrimage. And in these churches, uh, two things happen. <clears throat> they decide to build these churches underground because the Arab armies were always traveling around the country. They at times 
and using their telescopes and they could tell where a church was, a community was. And they will use that as a, as a, as a target to go and then to destroy the community around the church. So they built, they came up with the concept of building these subterranean churches. And what they did is they went to the mountains and they dug out the foot, they, they carved out a footprint of a church. And then they dug down 40 feet, essentially separating the middle block from the walls. Looking back at this 40 of uh, this structure they had left uh, in the middle, this monolith, they went back to the monolith and carved the monolith into rooms, making churches. So essentially what you have left since the 13th century are churches that are living sculpture. Hmm. So what I have done, and I've been going to this place uh, after my second year in Ethiopia, 74, I went for my first trip and I talk about in the book, it was a week, took a week to get there through rain and mud. Um, and it was just incredible to walk up, to walk on a mountain. And then all of a sudden the mountain opens up to you. And in the, inside this mountain is this structure. The columns, the windows, it's all carved from the same mountain you're standing on. You go inside, the interior columns, the interior spaces, all carved from the same mountain. Incredible. So I then begin to learn something with my camera. I, I, I will go to Ethiopia and I will go to churches and then midday there's nobody there. And I'm like, well, what's, what's this about? That's not how I was raised in Alabama. You know, there's at least on a Sunday, somebody should be there midday, but no, they have a different calendar I discovered. Their calendar, and it begins as farmers, they go to church at 4.30 a.m. Hmm. Hmm. When the sun rise, they end. Hmm. Because the sun has, the, 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 their prayers have been answered. A new day has been delivered. Can you imagine at the bottom of these wells of these churches, you look up and you have this perimeter around you and the sun is up. And then it taught me to do some investigation about the Bible. It seems to have been the same calendar, the same daily calendar of the Jews and early Christians. Mm -hmm. Some of you who are Christian may remember this passage where Jesus is being captured by the Roman soldiers. And one guy who betrays him says to him, by the time the cock crows twice, you would have betrayed me thrice. Mm -hmm. That's early in the morning because the rooster does not wait to sunrise to crow. <laughs> the rooster crows before the sun gets up. But this is a daily schedule that everybody come together for their temple time before the sun rise, because the sun rising is, a, is a answering that, hey, you, you're blessed with a new day. The Egyptians, as I begin to read further, did the same thing. And that's why they situated their temples towards the east. The big gates in front of the temples, they call pylons. The people will assemble behind the pylon, facing the opening, the aperture in the pylon, so that when the sun rises, the sun comes up through that, that's your deliverance. That's what they were getting high on. The fact that they were given another day to live. The sun had brought them. See, the thing about them, and the Egyptians were very much into nature. They were, they were so they were understood the fact that like the moon, we all go through phases. But the sun gives us regularity and continuity. So they develop concepts to talk about those. And the most, the most uh, I guess, overarching concept is the concept of a deity they call Newt. 
I, sp I think it should be spelled NWT for English speakers, but English people spell it NUT. Uh, the French spell it NUIT. What is newt? You may have seen oh, the example of a long, lean body woman arching over the planet in a downward dog position. Anybody know downward dog? Anybody know yoga? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I know. Downward. Okay. <laughs> Uh, 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 Marcy, do you, do you do yoga? I don't do it, but I know what downward dog is. Okay. There's mm -hmm. a, there's an Egyptian image of a woman in a downward dog position. She's leaning over the planet, but she's leaning over the solar poles of the planet, the equator, not the North and South. And her hands are pointed to the West and her feet are lodged in the East. Now this could mean nothing. But what it meant to them is continuity. And this is how they came about it. Her arms in the West were becoming, will become the runway for the sun as it goes down to come up her arms and enter her mouth. There she swallows it. It then goes through her body where it is recharged re overnight. And she wears a dress with holes in it. And out of those twinkling holes becomes the stars. And in the morning, when her foot is on the east, she gives birth to the sun again. So to them, that was a concept of continuity. Newt, giving birth to the sun. And in Newt's body, we see the phases of the moon and life has changed because we live in a world with a sky that has two eyes in it. We have the sun and the moon. We've learned from astronomy, there's some worlds with four and five eyes in it. We just only have two. So the whole thing is about how do you um, define or capture where you, what your environment is, what time you're in, and where you're located. And the Egyptians, the more I study about them, it's, it's amazing what they were able to do because they also gave us our first calendar. Wow. Hmm. Wow. Wow. <clears throat> well, any more questions? Or we've been talking for more than an hour now, and. Wow. Okay. Well, in, <laughs> yeah. What? <laughs> give me a, what, what question? Some more photography questions, or you know, I found it interesting. Did anybody get the the, the review I got in the um, in the um, Wall Street Journal? Okay, you have to go to my website, please. Okay, you have to go to the website sacrednile.com. Uh huh. On that website, you know, you go into one is videos where I'm talking about it and other people are talking about it. But the other thing you probably will get the most help from is this section called reviews. And okay. you can see how other people have what other reviews are coming out about the book. Mm -hmm. The Wall Street Journal did a review about my book and really didn't talk about it. They talked about the the. Uh, what are they doing? Uh, they talked about uh, what they appreciated my my expertise, my my um, it's my technique, but they didn't talk about. But they give sh a short shrift to what I was doing. It says here, this is their came out yesterday, the holiday gift books, two thousand twenty one. Chester Higgins says <laughs> his latest book is a portrait of the spiritual imagination and the genesis of faith in Africa. Then they say, I'm a former staff photographer for the Times. I devoted 50 years of my personal time to this book, a labor of love and devotion. 
his considerable technical skill imbues his color pictures of the temples, churches, mosques, and monuments of Northeast Africa with some of the feeling that the people who erected them must have felt. Even objects in museums are vivified. That's, so that's all technique. Now, there are also pictures of present-day worshipers, Muslim, Christian, Jews, and naturalists. A mysterious light illuminates the column of Luxor Temple in Egypt. A starry sky is seen from a rock-hewn church high above Hazen, Ethiopia. A row of Nubian pyramids marches across the desert at the Royal Necropolis of Sudan. Nice, but you know, I wish they had said more. <laughs> <laughs> it's very nice. Well, it, make, it would make me want to look at it. <laughs> well, that's then that yeah, so that's good. Yeah, so it works. Well, <laughs> when you look at it, you'll you'll see what other people in reviews you you enjoy it because yeah. everything that you see in this book that you did not know, there's a reason why you don't know it, and it's called historical censorship. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Right, right. Well, what are you up to next? What is your next project? I'm going back to Egypt. I'm now going to just do a book on Egypt, but I want to look at Egypt. See, the thing about Egyptology is interesting. It's a broad field. You're talking 5,000 years. And it's been, I had to spend the first 20 or 30 years figuring out where nobody else had dipped. So I had to find out what everybody else had done. And the one place that nobody had dipped is where sacred Nile comes in, connecting the spiritual and religious belief <clears throat> of, say, of Egypt to Sudan and Ethiopia. Now, the other thing I have to look at is I've learned is this. I mean, spirituality is, is universal. Religions speak to different populations for different reasons. So the Abrahamic religion, you have to think is a bridge that came off the river. And then out of that, so you out of that bridge, you get Judaism, you get Christianity, you get Islam. I, for what I find most interesting in all of those religions, there's one word that is, that is common to all of them. Every one of them say this word, it's not translated. And that word is A-M-E-N. Why is it that A-M-E-E-N has a place in every one of those religions? And why is it that the word A-M-E-N has a sense of, 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 of authority, spiritual authority that says, okay, that's it. So you might be find this to be interesting is that the top god of the Egyptians was named A-M-E-N. Not only did the Egyptians invent the concept of having dialogue with the spirit world, but they also invented the names for it. And the name Amen, the Egyptians are gone. But that name Amen, that concept Amen continues to live. So I want to go and look to see what testimony does the art of the Egyptians leave behind that speaks to how amen captured their imagination. Mm. Mm. Because to me, the other books, to me, the Abrahamic books are essentially book two, three, and four. What we're missing is book one, the book of amen <laughs> that they all riffed off of. Right, right. Well, I, after having done some work with some linguists, I will have to say that, uh, you know, etymology by sound is often not sound etymology, <laughs> but I'll, go, I'll let it go with that. I could go into it. 
I did some well, work. In that's okay. That's okay. <laughs> but we know that we know that amen is, is not only the, is used in the king's names, it's you and Karnak is the house of Amen. We can we see it. I mean, you Amen Hotep, uh, all the Amens, you know, they're there. Uh, the, now there have been confusion with those because the biblical archaeologists had a problem. They didn't want to, because at the same time, they couldn't discredit Egypt as pagan and carry the word uh, Amen with them. So they wanted to change the name to another syllable like O or U, which you can do. And the reason you can do it is because the Egyptian uh, language does, is a consonant-based language. It's rare to have a vowel. So the people who spoke the language knew which vowel to drop where. And that allows people then to do with the Amun, A-M-U-N, the Iman, A-M-O-N, or if they take it from the Egyptian, the A-M-N, A-M-E-N. Hmm. Anyway, a lot of, uh, so much work is being done now on the Egyptian contribution to the mainstreams of, of uh, philosophy. I wonder in in uh, religion you know, is philosophy. Yeah, I wonder in in going around uh, Senegal and, and Ghana if you ran into uh, uh, Aikwe Arma, the novelist. He uh, he was my roommate at Harvard. One one thing about Harvard, you met a lot of fascinating people there. And um, he, he's written some of the great modern African epic novels, like The Healers and 2000 Seasons, about the, hmm. about the ancient migrations. And uh, he was always working on a concept called the Black Athena. Hmm. Uh, and uh, in other words, the contributions of Egyptian civilization to Greek thought, you know, and Roman thought. Uh, I, I, I may have heard of him. He's, I know there. It was, I thought this, this guy I heard of who lives in Martin. Senegal, who writes English about Egypt, was from Ghana. From Ghana. Yeah, that's him because yeah, that's he's him, from yeah. Ghana. Okay. Okay. He was known as George George Armour when we were in school. He went by George Armour. Oh, yeah. Okay. George, yeah, oh, yeah. He, he's, in, he's in Kent's book quite a bit. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, okay. He, he was a major player there in, in the, our class. Oh, great. Great, great. Uh, well, but he's, uh, you'd be good. interested in his writing. Yes, yes. Now, now I've finished his book, I would be. Yeah. Well, of course, uh, Martin Bernal, of course, is the author of the Black Athena. volume of Black Athena. Right. Oh, yeah. Tremendous work. Thanks for letting us know that you there's so few books left uh, for Thanksgiving and Christmas <laughs> so we can get one. <laughs> hey guys, move, go, go, do it today. Move fast. And yeah, won't yeah. Gonna <laughs> I'm going to do it. Well, well, listen, thank you so much for coming on. And we, it was really fascinating and we'll have to do it again. That was photographer Chester Higgins. His new book is called Sacred Nile. And that's it for this episode of The Last Negroes at Harvard. I'm Kent Garrett. You can hear more episodes on our podcast. And you can read all about us in the book, The Last Negroes at Harvard.